Stefan, welcome to the Judgment Call podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Hey, um, you belong to this elusive list of people who have traveled to all 193 countries. And uh, we spoke with Rick um, a couple of episodes ago about that. And it is still a relatively small list of just a few hundred people, maybe a few thousand by now. How did you desire to go to so many different countries get started? How did you get into this whole travel bubble? My parents are workaholics and we were not traveling other than, than visits to relatives like my grandparents uh, in New York growing up. And I did study Chinese in my middle school and high school and the junior year trip, uh, student exchange trip to China. It was, the, it was the big wow moment for me, how energetic and exciting. And I, and I went on to live in China for a decade later and it's, there's something that's just so busy about being in China, even the quietest place, there's activity and, and energy. And that, that got me really excited. And it's a mix of that. And, uh, you know, there's, I think pretty much anybody who gets on this, this, this completest road, because many people, as you said, uh, there's not that many that have gone all the way. And I know many people that they'll reach a hundred countries, 150, and they've seen what they want to see. And some of the remainders are arduous, probably more expensive than than they want for their budget and and they think they're there but uh those of us that have to go all the way it's it's something like stamp collecting or or that that goes back to, to childhood for me it was my mother would would always get upset if, if it was a birthday party and somebody would give me a new toy that i had never had because i would go straight to the catalog and look at the whole series and and think <laughs> i need i need to have yeah. the whole set i can't just i can't just experience one <laughs> There seems to be quite an obsession involved, and it's interesting that you say that, that your parents didn't travel at all. I feel like the, the, this relatively small group um, in, their, in their early memories, it's either they traveled a ton, they're basically the, mm. the, um, the daughter or son of diplomats, basically every year in a different place, or it's I never got to travel, and then I just I fell in love with it. That's kind of what also applies to me. I never got to travel when I was younger. Yeah, I used my caddying money in, I think, eighth grade, and I, I was in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I said, I paid my parents to take me to Wisconsin Dells for a weekend to, to do the yeah. water slides and mini golf. Because, you were desperate. You were desperate. They, I mean, they, were, they put everything into the education for my brother and I, so I, I owe them tremendously, and that was, that was what was, was possible in, the, in travel. And, and later on, then, once we were both through school, they started traveling with me at times and, and really came to embrace it. But that was the, the focus in that life stage was education, 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 and then uh, being able to use that to inform what uh, both my brother and I wanted to do in life. Yeah. When you, when you look back um, and you, I don't know what time frame it took you to get to all uh, countries, well, what was your plan? How did you set out to do this? It just happened kind of randomly, and then you went for the last 50, just with more of a goal in mind? How, how long did it take? It took uh, just about just over 20 years, and uh, uh, it started with me spending a semester in Hong Kong and taking um, um, classes. I arranged to have be Monday to Wednesday night and would take the, the uh, subway up to the, the mainland China border and hop on whatever train and, and bus was heading that was long enough for me to sleep the night. And so I traveled around China, visited every province, got internships, started getting paid jobs, started traveling around Asia and just kept filling in the map and, and getting more excited and realizing that, that every place I went to, I, I would it was just it was it was the rush for me to to walk through immigration and, and start something new and so i kept adding that and i had this rough goal i didn't have a um uh, 
specific time. I never took off from work, for instance, to dedicate to large amounts of travel. So it'd be fitting in what uh, what holidays would allow. Uh, but then what really in my 30s allowed me to speed it up much and a subject you know a lot about are the frequent flyer programs and suddenly destinations that uh, were financially or time prohibitive. You know, there's, there's two big variables in here, the, the time it takes. And sometimes the slower you go, the more money you can save. If you're on a, a tight schedule, you often end up facing more costs. Uh, and then the means of transports, what's what's available to you. So um, learning a lot about the frequent flyer programs got me to the end of that list just a, a few days before my 40th birthday, whereas I had expected it would be you know, essentially a retirement. I'd, I had not visited much of Europe till near the end uh, of my last five countries, uh, San Marino, Italy, and Greece were three. And uh, <laughs> I was thinking that that was going to be my retirement plan, but I was able to to pick up the pace a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, most people start with Europe, right? They go to the easy countries first and uh, they go to the easy countries in Asia. And then there is a bunch of them left. And you run your own Facebook group, um, Every Passport Stem. I think mm -hmm. that's the, the name of the group. Mm -hmm. And it's a really fascinating group. I've been a member for some time. And Rick told me about it, um, Rick Azarian. Um, and it, it really is about, and there's amazing hacks that people come up with to get to countries where you're from the outset, you think, oh, it's impossible to go there. It's Somalia, um, talk to James Wilcox about that. It's uh, Syria that is a war zone right now. And somehow they find a way to, to literally just get that passport stamp. That's what it is about. There is always a hack. There's always a taxi driver who takes you over the border. There's always someone you can talk into it. How is that when you, when you started this group, did you think it will get that that specialized and will get that interesting or you knew all the tricks already at that point because you you, you went to so many places well, there's no way you know all the tricks and it, it changes constantly and i i um the the uh, altruistic reason for starting the group was was having this travel community for information of destinations that are never going to bubble up in a trip advisor or some of these other forums and we've never promoted it. I've never set the even the category tags in Facebook, so it's not easy to find. Uh, it's really been word of mouth, and we've never, you know, many groups do these things, refer a member, you know, get your numbers. We want 10, 20, 30,000 people. It's always intended to be very focused. It's not that everybody should be going to every country in the world that maybe they specialize in one country. One person really knows Chad. And, and those are the people that we want that have this incredible depth and passion about a subject or a theme of travel, uh, you know, certain art exhibits that they, they figure out where they're going to be, how to get tickets before they're sold out, all of these elements so that it's, it's, it's serious travel and that people are thinking about you know, beyond the package tour, the package vacation, how to do something that that would mean a ton to them. And and in terms of the information, I mean, it. Uh, uh, although I should say the selfish reason I did I started the group is that I felt that if anybody figures out how to visit Diego Garcia as a tourist, I want them to know me and I want them to invite me along for it. So, you know, this this networking thing that uh, I mean, it, it has been incredible. I mean, travel has temporarily or to some degree permanently shifted over the past year plus but i'm thinking back two years ago there was there was suddenly this news reports on a, a few news uh, like uh, associated press and that that sierra leone which which had been quite expensive for visas for many nationalities as well as 
quite quite a uh, an in-person challenge in many cases and, and requiring certain documentation uh, I was in I was in their embassy in, in Ghana a few years ago and I didn't have a hotel confirmation and I was getting some some bad Wi-Fi and phone signal saying I'm just pulling it up as I was trying to find a hotel I could book quickly but um, but these these reports came out and said they were going to start issuing visa on arrival and there was no information in the official releases nothing uh you know any of the media coverage said how you would actually do it when it would start is there a website with information and a lot of countries just don't have good websites and somebody shared the article in eps and within an hour somebody said oh yeah i just arrived today uh here's here's the paper the customs gave me it was visa on arrival here here's all the details they you know have a pickup flyer and, and that that information there's just no other way to to get it that i found and that's that's been a true joy of the group yeah it's quite amazing and um i mean the example you gave is, is in africa i always feel like you can kind of in many places, there is like an informal visa on arrival. It might work or might not, but it's 50-50 most of the time. Mm -hmm. If you can make it mm -hmm. on that plane, then usually it will work. And uh, it kind of depends where you start. But there's other countries that make it extremely hard. And we were, we were debating this with Boris. And he said, well, sometimes it looks that way that you can get there. But it's, you know, you spend $500. You don't go anywhere, which is kind of, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it messes with your travel plan. Um, when you look at the, and we, we have the COVID restrictions now that sit on top of all the entry restrictions, and sometimes mm -hmm. they make it much worse. Sometimes it's basically no COVID restriction. There's a few places left, and some require COVID tests, but it hasn't really changed the nature of the game. When you look at the countries right now, um, and anticipate they're going to reopen at some point. Some are completely closed, I know. What do you think are the, and when you look at the group, what are the top five countries that people really struggle with to go with either European or an American passport? Struggle with I, I don't know, because then people always turn up in, in these places. I mean, it's yeah. uh, I, I, I'd say for the most part that travelers are going where they, they think it's going to be feasible and and they're not necessarily taking the same chances that, that have been in the past of. You know, maybe maybe they'll let me into Eritrea. Maybe they won't. Maybe I'll get deported. It, it, we, we see a little bit less of that activity. Uh, and then uh, people are doing a lot more determined research that I know people that have been to Libya recently and that you know, did a lot of research on how to get in. Venezuela has been very tough. People have gotten in. So it's I, I think people are, are maybe doing the due diligence they should have in the past. A lot and uh <laughs> you know and and one one theme about this and, and i think that uh travelers starting out may not understand all that well is, is there's really two two barriers and once you get to the country you often have a, a probably a better chance of succeeding than if the airline denies you and so say a lot of the covid restrictions but similar for visa uh, the international system tomatic, which uh, several, it, it's paid access to uh, check the data directly, but several airlines like United Airlines, KLM provide uh, the data for free to, uh, to consumers in their, in their travel uh, visa section. Uh, if, if the uh, tomatic says you need this to enter and you are trying to board a plane in a stickler country like Netherlands or Germany, you know, you can be assured that the these airline staff are going to look at this and say, you do not qualify. You are not getting on the plane because it's our responsibility if you show up there and we have to get you back. Uh, so checking that data and 
some countries, like if, if you're flying Royal Air Morocco within intra-Africa, they might be a little more lax as an example. But for the most part, if, if Tomatic is saying that you're not going to get in, you know, that's a very good chance you're going to get denied boarding and there's no one to sweet talk there. Uh, if if Tomatic is unclear or you look like you qualify for that, something could still go wrong in terms of visa or local things. But once you're at the country, you have the officials who can make the decisions and uh, potentially work things out. Yeah, my personal experience was mm -hmm. with Sudan um, mm -hmm. just in 2019. And it is a country where you can get a visa. You have to pre-arrange it and you pick it up. So it's not that hard. I was just there for a transit and transits are free. So... I was, mm -hmm. wasn't even worried, and it was relatively clear and thematic what to do. But my tr transit was much longer. When I booked it, it was two hours. Now it was like 17 hours, and that's mm -hmm. apparently not covered because of the, the guidelines are four mm -hmm. hours. So I, I, it was much easier because it seems like once you're already in Africa, as you say, with, with Royal and Morocco, but also with, uh, with Ethiopian, they, mm -hmm. they seem to be relatively relaxed. And uh, once I got to Sudan, everyone was like, um, this is the visa fee. We, we make it $100 mm -hmm. for you and enjoy Sudan as long as you want. I'm like, uh, this is not what I thought it would be because then I would have come <laughs> here, right? Then I, I wouldn't have opted for a transit. I said, no, 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 don't worry about that. It's just what people write down. So there, there was an amazing sense of hospitality. And I, I, I've, I've seen this in, in many other places like Cameroon that are relatively mm -hmm. hard to get to. Um, and maybe Angola is one of those. Maybe I don't know if mm -hmm. this, these mm -hmm. things change. But as you say, once you make it into the plane, which is a 50-50 situation, you're mostly going to make it into the country. Um, how do you get to Libya right now? Do you do you do you try to avoid the officials, but then you don't get like you literally just cross the border illegally, or is that the idea? But how do you get your passport stamped then? I don't know. I mean, there's there are there are people who visit, and uh, uh, it's. Yeah, this this kind of illegal entry or that is is nothing I condone, and I don't know that it even works for for, for Libya. This is generally uh, being invited by an official agency on a in a business context. So yeah. uh, having a business reason that that is supported by their documents and that 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 you could come in and visit. So uh, yeah, I know a few that were just uh, just there about a month ago and visited, and they did it they did it through all official dumb and, and did it officially, and that's. That's one thing that I'm, I'm very firm on. I've, I've never illegally entered uh, any place. Uh, I've never, you know, like when I was struggling for several years to uh, my 193 UN final country was Syria and spent over two years and working on it and would talk to different people and they'd, they'd keep saying, well, there's a lot of one-way options, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's the round trip that, uh, <laughs> that yeah, our ones you want to... <laughs> yeah, how does this work with the sanctions? Uh, there's a bunch of countries we Americans are not supposed to go, at least we don't have any business relationship. I'm not sure if this uh, goes all the way into visa, like yeah. Cuba, North Korea, um, Venezuela. I'm not sure if we, if, or we and Cuba kind of changed and flip-flopped quite a bit. Are there any countries we as Americans are not supposed to go at all from the American point of view? Obviously, these countries might have their, their own opinion on this. In my lifetime, the the only one that, that I'm aware of that really became a you-cannot-go, in a sense, was uh, the Trump administration regulations on North Korea, which which are still in effect, that that yes. the they're saying the U.S. State Department that a, a U.S. passport is not valid for travel to North Korea, whereas um, uh, you know, that that's that's totally separate from any policies that the country of North Korea may may have or not. Uh, and then Cuba is, as I understand it, not not a legal expert, but the uh, the trading with the enemy act 
which is still in effect, uh, is restrictions on commerce. And, and then there's certain categories of uh, ways that, that a tourist or a, a um, cultural organization or a business person have been allowed or not. Under the Obama administration, those categories and exceptions were uh, expanded. But if, if I understand the fine print of the Trading with the Enemy Act is if, if you were to say swim to Cuba and walk around and never spend any money and swim away, you know, if, if, if that were possible, I, I think that technically would be acceptable under the act uh, because you've not, you've not, you know, it, it, it's not really feasible, but you know, unless you have your Cuba. own. That's what I always I, say, right? That's what I yeah. always say. No, I, I haven't been to Cuba actually. Um, Iran, is that a country that's on that list or will we, will we not affected by that? Obviously Iran requires you to be in a tour group um, for most Americans and that was pre-COVID, it might not come back or it might come back in a different shape. But does the US also regulate that? Uh, no, I mean, there is no Iranian embassy in uh, the United States. And so they, they have certain consular functions that are handled by the embassy of Pakistan, uh, as well as uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in, in Iran approves approves visas. And so there is extra paperwork. But, but yeah, all, all of these different uh, designations and, and sanctions uh, are usually either focused towards certain individuals, companies, governments, or they... Um, uh, you know, are, are related to certain types of commerce and that 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 don't directly impact tourists. So, so in the case of Iran, as you said, uh, Americans and British nationals typically have to be in a tour group for Iranian purposes. That could be a tour group of one, uh, but with a guide. Uh, but from the U.S. side, no. Actually, that, that was about a decade ago when I was right during the, the Arab Spring demonstrations, and I was I was boarding the flight. I was uh, in business in Atlanta at the time and got my. It was took over two months. Got my passport the night before. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was like the pack. The, the the foreign ministry had the wrong fax number for the Pakistan embassy, and I was coordinating, which it was just <laughs> uh, ridiculous. But I was boarding and checking in for the flight on KLM. I mean, it was just a direct book from the U.S. and uh, uh, Atlanta to to Amsterdam to uh, Tehran, and I kept waiting for somebody to say, "Oh, you're going, you're going here." Wow, and nobody nobody blinked. So I was so yeah. disappointed. There's a lot of Iran Iranians that still go back. I mean, most of them probably won't because they don't know if it's a one-way ticket, but a lot of them have to go on official business, on, on, on real business, right? So that's there is a one, there is a back and forth between Iran and the US. Well, I mean, my, my impression, not, not an expert in the region, is that in terms of movement of people, Iran is quite uh, quite open. And I mean, it was just people met on the street. It was, yeah. uh, you know, that, that they would have some First of all, it's an incredibly educated population. You know, I don't know where it ranks in, in the world rankings, but it, the people you meet at restaurants, wherever, as, as a tourist, you interact. You know, very educated, often speaking English, and um, uh, you know, often would cite experience. Certainly, traveling within the region uh, and and often to Europe. I mean, U.S. is is a bit of a different case, uh, but it, it didn't strike me that that people were as limited inside as as the media. Would, would make it portend in terms of their, their external travel. Yeah, that's uh, that's really good to hear about Iran, which I think has has gotten quite a bad rap. Um, when, we, when you think about all the places you've been to and when you compare it to your expectations, what were countries or places where you felt like, and maybe Iran is one of them, where you felt like, whoa, you didn't have any expectation or my expectations were, expectations were pretty low or they were higher, but it really exceeded your expectations. It, it really surprised you in a positive manner. It was affordable, the people were friendly, the food was good, all these things that make travel so much better. 
I was going to ask you about Sudan when you mentioned it. It sounds like you had a very brief experience, but that's one. I never got to go, but the people were amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. which is really interesting. I was in this really weird transit place, and every hour or so, someone with with, with stars um, on their mm -hmm. on their on their shoulder, um, obviously someone who who is in the army came by and checked on me, and they they, they I put some food orders in. Well, they asked me mm -hmm. if I'm if I'm hungry because there's nothing to eat there, right? It's not mm -hmm. not like a real airport. It's basically like a waiting room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they brought me food, and I'm like, "So where do I pay?" They said, "No, no, it's all on us." So every yeah. hour, and I was there for twelve hours. Someone gave me food, and they didn't speak any English, but I kind of, you know, showed them some pictures. And uh, I thought this was amazing. I had this little, this little insight that I got, which is really tiny. I feel like Sudan is a place with real hospitality, real um, Islamic hospitality. You, you mentioned Rick and his uh, Rick Azarian and his Counting Countries interview series, and he he always asked the big, most hospitality in the, in the world. And I think nine out of ten guests probably mentioned Iran as this incredibly hospitable place, and that was my experience. But maybe Sudan could rival them in terms of this just an incredible, outgoing, wonderful. I mean, the, the experience traveling around Sudan is not only are you seeing the the pyramids before the pyramids in Egypt, but just every time you fill up a gas tank, you're suddenly sitting for an hour sipping sipping tea and uh, you know by, by the side of the road with just chatting with people. Uh, you know, there's yeah, th there's so many there's so many destinations that that have surprised me. And, and if you're talking from a perspective of say an American traveler, like I was just speaking to a person who'd never been to Central Asia and just. I pick any country in the region, an incredible experience that travelers really into food, a, a place like Uzbekistan. I mean, you'll, you'll gain a, a kilogram a day, but you'll have this yeah. incredible, rich, wonderful food. And you know, even cl closer to home, say in the Caribbean, that so many of the islands, and uh, you know, I think you've talked to Charles Vili of most traveled people. Uh, there's Traveler Century Club. Uh, these these islands that don't have the major international airports, so uh, Seba, Montserrat, uh, very small, quirky places. I've I've absolutely loved that. Uh, when it, especially coming from from the U.S. and then also living in China, I've, big countries are what I've known. So visiting a place that's very small, where where when they say everybody knows their name, I mean they truly <laughs> they truly do know who everybody is. That's that's the most interesting slice of life for me is to to have that yeah. that incredible contrast and get get a taste of what what living in in, in such a, a small community would feel like. It's quite strange that we've lost this, right? So we have these these big cities, we have these these very advanced cities. We think of them as very advanced. We have these this this modern comforts, and we we're somewhat healthy, right? We at least we have mm -hmm. tons of different treatments. Mm -hmm. There is something that I feel when when we travel, we we see this it's kind of more like a hunter-gatherer style right so it's not mm -hmm. necessarily hunter-gatherer society but it's still in these groups of 50 maybe 100 maybe 200 people mm -hmm. people living in villages they know each other there is there's a certain warmth to it that is very difficult to find in these much bigger civilizations we live in now mm -hmm. and i think a lot of us they really miss that part of, of living we would say it's subsistence, it's poor, and it's kind of, when you, you see this a lot in, in Ethiopia, for instance, or when you see this in India, but there is this warmth between people that seems to make up for all these things. Um, mm -hmm. I find this quite surprising, right? So we, we, we lost maybe, and we can also see this in Papua New Guinea with, with actual hunter-gatherer societies, that there is something to this kind of 
lifestyle that we've lost and we all crave maybe just for two weeks right so i don't know if mm. we were ready to go back to be a hunter gatherer but we, we we get it for two weeks and then i think we're fine for a couple of months and we go back into our little matrix world yeah and there's and there's places that uh you know doesn't need to be so extreme and in, in terms of the the contrast of cultures uh i was just thinking of norfolk island which uh, sits between australia new zealand uh history back to the the uh, the bounty mutineers and and um it's 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 one of the, the the places in the world where every car that you drive by when when you're driving, you know, they 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 raise their fingers over the steering wheel or give a wave, and maybe there should be an index of all the places where everybody waves at every passing car because that that indicates a certain kind of community. But uh, I happened to be there uh, uh, over it was on a on a Sunday. I was seeing some of the historic sites, uh, the the waterfront and that, which was nice but but they were they were deserted there were no tourists there it wasn't uh what wasn't a, a a big tourist destination really any time of the year and uh but they had the historic church had services going on and it was i walked in and you know, truly it's everybody turns and who is this guy you know but uh, you know but they they welcomed me in and after this and they said oh you know you're you're clearly a visitor is there a hymn that's special to you and then afterwards you know it was the the retired uh uh, editor of the local newspaper and all of these, and I mean, and this is this is Australia, but it's different, and and uh, uh, yeah, so these 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 kind of experience, especially for a tourist, where you, where you often do have limited time, is where you can really step into a community and and right in the moment you're you're swimming in it, uh, which is very different. Uh, I love big cities. My wife and I, when we travel. Uh, the big cities, the food is uh, uh, really her thing. But uh, all of these have, have informed me in different ways. Yeah. You spend a lot of time in China. And it's mm -hmm. not necessarily a country that most travelers I know put on top of their list. It's, it's mm -hmm. overwhelming. It's crowded. It has, mm -hmm. you need to develop an appreciation for the local cuisine. And obviously, the language is difficult. How did you fall in love with China? Uh, I, I was not given a choice. I actually, I was back home in Minnesota and uh, just saw my high school Chinese teacher, and she was lecturing me for all all the all my shortcomings that I, I haven't done in my career yet. Uh, uh, I, I started studying Chinese and uh, you know, became part of her world, Margaret Wong of uh, Breck School in Minneapolis, and and she set up many of the early programs in, in the U.S. and it it uh, um, you know, became this this academic subject that was interesting in as an academic thing. And then when I went there for the first time, as I said, it was that incredible excitement, the building projects, the rush of people, the, the activity, the, you know, I, I probably flying there. I probably felt like the, the, the grass should be blue and the sky, the, the sky pink. It wasn't another planet, but in so many ways it was such new experiences to me. And uh, you're right that it's, it's exhausting. It's, it's a challenging place. It's and the thing is, it's not just challenging for a foreigner or a visitor. It's it's a tiring, exhausting place for for anyone living there, Chinese or or whoever, because it is so busy, so competitive, crowded in many places. Uh, but that that incredible thrill. I mean, I've I, I lived and worked there, and even even what would seem like a boring office job is never never quite boring and <laughs> compared to in the US you might be sitting in an office and in the cubicles and not not have anything interesting happen in the day and and uh, that that spontaneity and, and the vibrancy of the, the way people interact uh, it's it, it's a lot of fun I mean there were times when I was living there that I'd be so exhausted from a week of work that 
I would go into my apartment on a Friday night and not come out till Monday morning, just, <laughs> just decompressing as I am naturally an, an introvert and I'm Scandinavian a background from Minnesota, the not used to <laughs> being on all the time. Uh, yeah. But it was that, uh, uh, incredible, incredible experience. And uh, in many respects, I, I might still be there today, although for family and career decisions, or we're back in the U.S. at this point. Yeah. Well, when you when you look back, how difficult was it for you to to get to some kind of fluency? I mean, you know, not abstract legal discussions with anyone mm -hmm. in Chinese, but something mm -hmm. where you feel like, well, you could you could have a decent dinner party conversation. Um, how long did that take mm -hmm. you? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly I, I studied for a number of years in school, but when you arrive, you realize that's a totally different thing to speak. And it, I mean, it uh, studied for a semester, was there interning, it was probably altogether like a year and a half or so where I felt comfortable enough that then I started uh, started working and, and for several years worked in a Chinese company where all the colleagues were, I mean, some some had limited English, but it was not a foreign company. The The operating language of the company was was Chinese, all the documents were Chinese, the business negotiations. And then, uh, then, then I had to get really good, really fast, but it, it helped the more you immerse yourself. I never lived in an expat compound somewhere out, uh, out in the suburbs. And, you know, that's, it's, it's easier when you're, when you're single and, and young to, you know, pick an apartment in the city. Many expats come when they're already, a bit further on in their career, they've got kids, you know, all these considerations. So I always, uh, in some ways, I regret I knew so few expats, but I really focused on on being part of the community. Uh, the travel was was a huge part. Uh, there's still some of the slow trains left in China that are the old green ones where it's three seats by three seats facing. And it you know, you're there for how many hours and you just talk, talk, talk. And so it was a lot of those these long train rides overnight where you're just in a seat and there's nothing to do for people, but blow smoke in your face and talk that, uh, I just got better. And so one of the things that I've done well is, um, learning how to, uh, understand different forms of Mandarin. Uh, so a lot of people that haven't traveled as much within China, they're used to their, their own dialect and the Mandarin they hear on TV, but they don't necessarily interact as much, as, as when I was traveling so much with people of other provinces and and, and trying to communicate, which you know, very, very educated people that have been to university, there's, there's no challenge with the day-to-day the -day stuff. You have to, you have to have a little bit of a, um, uh, a little bit of like an imperfection filter. And I, I've noticed this around the world. If you're trying to communicate with people that have never encountered someone of a different culture, it's often harder for them to sort of interpret what what somebody speaking their language badly might be wanting or, or sign language. But if, if people have interacted a little bit with, with people from, from different areas, they're a little bit better at guessing. So I got, I got pretty good at, uh, at guessing and, and uh, piecing together and having conversations with, with people all over the country. Yeah. What is your insight into the Chinese soul, so to speak? When we, when we look at the rise of China from, from the U S it's, mm -hmm. it's, was our friend and um, you know there was a strong somewhat strong alliance mm -hmm. against the russians 50 years ago in a geopolitical field they went from we are communists but we're not really communists and you guys take this too seriously and then we we always mm -hmm. felt like as a geopolitical uh, view that china would become more open it kind of would look like taiwan by now it did mm -hmm. happen to an extent because the cities kind of look like taiwan maybe more modern 
But the government and how we perceive China, this seems to be going in the wrong direction. Um, what is your take on this when you know the Chinese soul, you know where the government is? What's going on in China, really? And are we, are we having the wrong picture about China? I think there's you know there's there's so many ways to to try to get at this and it's it is such a complicated thing. I, one element is, is is there certain uh, peoples and cultures around the world that that see themselves as a civilization uh, first and foremost, and, and instead of seeing themselves maybe as a country, so Iran I would give as an example as well that uh, you travel to Iran, you meet Iranians. I mean, they're they're immediately citing their poets from 1500 years ago, and they're always talking about their civilization, and and so there's a there's a tremendous pride in that that can sometimes in international relations. Be seen as an arrogance in that, and and um, China, Iran, you know, the, the U.S. In, in a in a rising sense, Russians, I think, often that way. I mean, they, they see themselves as this civilization that's a bit above everything else and everyone else, and that I call this an, it, it, the 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 national superiority complex. I think Germany is also a country. Japan is a candidate for this. There's a there's not a ton, but there's a bunch of countries who always seem to have that. Yeah, and I, I, I still feel even. I mean, compared to Europe, I mean, I feel like the nation. It's, it's a bit, yeah, it, it's a bit fuzzy where it crosses over. Is it, is it a nationalism versus a, it's this civilizational level thing that that stretches yeah. back so far? But I, I think what, what, I think you what can, is you can derive it from either, right? So you can either use yeah. this nationalism, or you can use the civilization was even older, or you can use technology. I mean, there's a bunch of ways mm -hmm. where you can derive that superiority complex and. I think a lot of those nations, and that's my my impression of China. Mm -hmm. You you correct me if that's wrong. They feel like they haven't gotten their fair share of laudation, so to speak. They they haven't gotten the rewards for how good they actually are. Uh, let's put it this mm -hmm. way: how they how much they've done good for the 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 economy for the for the whole mm -hmm. world, not just in the last twenty years, but the last one thousand years. And they kind of mm -hmm. not very happy about that on an emotional level. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's been a very deliberate government project of the past uh, uh, several decades of this idea that the 19th century was this time of incredible humiliation and and uh, you know, to a degree that it's where many countries that have also suffered in in colonialism and imperialism have maybe started as you know multiple generations have passed have started to move away from it uh, one of the first essays Chinese school kids learn is about, uh, the destruction of the the uh, the old summer palace in Beijing by the foreigner. I mean, it really is is emphasized so much, and uh, and, and so it leads to it, it leads to things that just seem almost comically sincere and and, and strange. I mean, the Chinese foreign uh, ministry spokespeople often talk about the hurt feelings of the Chinese people that. You know something, something, someone in a country did, like the an NBA, you know, general manager, or whatever that, you know, you know that this hurt the feelings of the. And no other country talks about the hurt feelings of their their people in that way, and it it uh, it, it is it is I think troublesome because it it does create a very widespread sense of uh, I guess in the U.S. we'd call it grievance politics of a form uh, that that uh, can poison a lot of relations, and you know, you look at. People that hunt around on the internet did, you know, does this country's um, little map of selecting their regions where they have stores, does it accurately reflect the way the PRC government views 
their territorial claims and it can be like a tiny little thumbnail thing and it's yeah. it's it, it's reasonable to say that that a country should accurately reflect the, the the world but also you know creating protests and demonstrations and and whipping up such such fervor on this this kind of stuff it's it's uh it's a risky thing to play with and it's it is very concerning of of um you know how much people you know this i guess the world over is dealing with what you can motivate people to think and do with social media and it's it's often unintended consequences however good the intentions are uh the the unintended consequences um you know it it uh on a person to person level uh you know i have tremendous relationships with with chinese of of all types and and none of, and and they'll they'll mention the political stuff actually many were fascinated by by trump in in unusual ways and, and found it very entertaining that period uh you know these these relations are good and and people want people want business to continue you know there are there are legitimate and very serious differences and conflicts uh certainly between the US and China government wise that uh, I'm not optimistic we'll have a magic or or easy solution and and you know to what degree that impacts people wanting to study abroad i mean when i when i studied uh at fudan university in shanghai in 19 uh, uh what was it 1999 from university of pennsylvania i was the only upenn student studying in shanghai at the time across all their programs and i'd hate to see it get back to that point uh yeah. but um you know there's you know it, there is some movement and and uh you know the the demonization in in U.S. media and politics, you know what what that does to to further further close Americans off is is I think going to be increasingly problematic as well. Yeah, I mean to be fair, I think the U.S. on some level, and that might not be you know the full story, but I talked to Jack Devine yesterday, who um, was assistant director of the CIA. He was like, you know, we really have to see what the people on the ground think and what they do, what they want, and then there's a government that's typically not democratic. The CIA is has never, and there's probably one or two exceptions, but never in their lifetime run a covert operation anywhere where there's a democratic government. Now, the definition mm -hmm. of a democratic government is sometimes a little loose, and you know the the North Korean government also thinks it's democratic, um, and the Eastern German government thought they were democratic, and I think to an extent they actually believed their own propaganda there. Mm -hmm. Usually, the tell is is when the word democratic is in the country name that it's exactly, uh, <laughs> but it's not. It's not. That's often the problem, but that's that's spot on. But he he said, you know, you really have to look what the people want. If the, if you can go into a country and can kind of help them get rid of the government, but if the people in that country don't want to Americans around it, their help, there's nothing you can do. So what we did in Iraq and what we did in Afghanistan, what we know now, we didn't really realize this before we went in, or maybe some people did. Um, but there is this, this sense of distinguishing what is actually going on in the country, what is kind of the unspoken word, and what's going on at the government level. And I know this because I grew up in Eastern Germany, and we went from a country that had no protests at all, ever, unless they were government organized, to a week where we had literally every living and person that could go on the streets out there, 13 million people out of nowhere. And they all said, okay, this is enough. We, we, we want to get rid of this government, right? So do you think this is the, the case also in China? Or people, they are afraid, they don't speak up, but there is a resentment against what's going on. Or most of the people that you have experienced, they say, well, it's probably okay what we have. We don't have to change anything on that structure. I think there's there's a lot of growing sophistication and, and, uh, and nuance to it. And uh, China has achieved in some incredible, incredible things. 
thing, the, 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 the health improvements, literacy, you know, there's, there's many negative things you can cite and stack them against many positive things. And you know, I've, I've never been to a country where people want to hate their country. You know, there's people can be very upset about things and, and, you know, you're growing up. I mean, I, I, I can imagine that there were analysts around the world that, you know, for, for every, every week of your life leading up to that moment predicted that this was the week something would happen or it would never happen in 20 years. And maybe one of them got lucky knowing it was that week, but it was, you know, it was just a, you know, what, what, what is that like? Well, you need and a I catalyst, think, right? You need, you need yeah. some kind of catalyst. At the time there was the Polish revolution, right? For some reason, Poland mm -hmm. was a year or two ahead mm -hmm. and they basically mm -hmm. provided a catalyst. So it's kind of like the, the, the Arab Spring. And was, there was one catalyst and then you could see these things moving, but you never know where it ends, right? Yeah. And then there's the, and, and I think maybe related to China, you, you mentioned examples. I mean, people uh, in Chinese government, I mean, just e everyday people really study the examples of countries that have had disruptive political changes. So, you know, I mean, the, the and now what? I mean, East Germany, uh, not, I'm not an expert at all, but as I understand, I mean, there's still regional differences of economic achievement. I mean, many things that that have not been reconciled by society. And uh, you look at uh, former communist states, uh, you know, the Soviet Union, the the state of those. I mean, that's, if you start discussing politics with, with uh, Chinese people, they will start talking about these kind of examples and this idea uh, throughout Chinese history that, that chaos uh, is a word that comes up that, you know, that, that can be a very bad thing. And, and, um, uh, what what does a disruption look like? And and many people, I mean, many people are, if you're if you're over sixty years old and you live in China, you've been through an exhausting lifetime of very dramatic political swings. I mean, I, I would argue that in many respects, uh, China is is more laissez-faire capitalist than than many societies. Certainly, the United States um, social safety net. I mean, essentially. There was no social safety net in, in terms of the coronavirus. These idea of of of, uh, of the government sending checks to every every household. I mean, none of that. It was okay. This thing has happened, and you should have prepared for it. So if you don't have savings, it's it, it's uh, it, it, it it's tough luck. So I, I think a lot of a lot of people are are justifiably proud and, and want to have their the the place in the world that they see fit. That blanket uh, accepting the these structures that were put in place by different countries in a different era, the post-World War II global order from, uh, you know, essentially dominated by the U.S. to, to blindly accept that doesn't necessarily make, make sense to everyone. And uh, uh, so there's, you know, there's, there's those elements. There's that, that justifiable pride, whereas there's also unhappiness about a lot of things that, um, yeah. uh, you know, how much, how much are companies and the state uh, knowing uh, people? About a year or so ago, um, some stores started rolling out uh, restaurant ordering by facial recognition that it would just scan your face and deduct from your your WeChat or Alipay account. And you could say, oh well, you know, there, there's so much public surveillance in China. Uh, you know, why why would people be upset? But there was there was a huge a huge pushback on it, and, and this came. And this maybe it's different because it was companies versus uh, government, but a lot, you know, it was it was enough that suddenly these were taken out of stores and they weren't used. You know, so so people people there are are adapting and and looking at what 
you know, what, what is the lifestyle and what is the, the, uh, uh, direction they really want to be. You know, I think the, um, if you ask people what the problems are that they see, they'll be happy to tell you. If you, if you tell them what the problems are, <laughs> you know, they, 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 uh, they really get defensive and that, and that happens in, yeah. in much of the world is if, if you can go in a listening mode and, and instead of a telling mode, uh, you'll, uh, you'll get a tremendous amount of insight and, and so many things. Uh, I mentioned that I worked at an all Chinese company, so Chinese owned. I mean, there was a, a handful of you know Singaporean, you know, a few foreigners like me out of a twenty thousand person company, and and um, um, one of the things I did, I was in the the um, finance department doing mergers and acquisitions and things. But they asked me to, on on some lunch breaks, teach the management team a bit about. Um, uh, help them improve their English, you know, reading financial reports, these kind of things, as well as pick different cultural moments. And we'd have these fascinating discussions. Uh, there was the Terry Schiavo case uh, at the time, which if, if that name rings a bell, I don't even remember all the details, but it was a, uh, a woman in the United States on life support. And I'm forgetting exactly what um, the situation uh, was with her health, but the prognosis was essentially that there was no no possibility of recovery and should should life support be withdrawn and essentially the entire u.s government shut down with congress people flying to her bedside making these huge political points and it it was all very valid debates about life and whose wishes uh you should be respected and how do you make decisions in these tough cases and I'm sitting in a room with a lot of Chinese managers that are are doing a cost benefit analysis, which, you know, maybe it sounds like it's more of a capitalist thing, but they're saying, how can the government afford to spend so much time on this one person when there's so many other things they need to do and they they need to help and and uh, uh, yeah. so it was like, well, you, you know, there there's a point to that. You know, we're we're arguing about a principle in the U.S. and we have such resources as a country. I mean, essentially we have enough money in the U S to solve most of our problems. If, if we really, if we could agree on what the problems are and, and what to do, I mean, we have, and we, that, that surfeit of that, that excess of resources allow us to uh, punt a lot of decisions down the road. I mean, you look at the coronavirus stuff. I mean, it, it was, you know, essentially the typical U.S. idea of wait till the very end and hope the, the Hail Mary works. And the Hail Mary appears to be working in terms of the vaccine came and, you know, seems to be working enough to make up for uh, not all these, uh, uh, you know, staggering number of lives lost, but in terms of... Well, you know, the Winston uh, Churchill quote, right? America always gets mm -hmm. it right after exceeding all the yeah. un impossible negative options. And I think we, we yeah. always do this or we try out a lot and then eventually we get yeah. it right because that's where we are drawn to. I, yeah, you know. when, when you think of the, I don't know if you've, you've thought about that in, in, in the geopolitical environment, where do you think we are in 10, 15 years from now? And this is especially related towards China. Um, are, we, are we basically in what we see now or we see, and a lot of people predict this, including me, we will see kind of a bit of a next Cold War, and the Cold War will be China, Iran, Turkey, Russia, maybe a few other countries together that band together, or it's definitely a loose alliance, but they have a shared interest, which they don't get the recognition they want out of the human, out of the international community. They feel like they've been cheated by the U.S. We, we are always mm. on the other side, will it, intentionally mm -hmm. or not. And then there is this battle over Europe, and there is a kind of a mix between a cold and a, and a hard war um, in mostly in proxy countries. 
which will make travel more and more difficult. And there's always there's Peter Zian out there who says, well, the America will retreat. We, we, we've learned that now. And I think this is very clear. We don't want to be the global policeman. It's just there's nothing for us on the other end of that rainbow. And travel will make it a little harder because it's more unilateral, right? So you can go, like Americans suddenly can go to Europe, but then in three months from now, we maybe can't go anymore. And then Australians can only go to these countries. So it seems everyone just makes up some random rules um, for travel and also for geopolitics. Do you think this is, that's what's going to happen in 15 years or it's going to look more or less like now where we have a certain impact of mostly, I think, European and um, US policies that kind of regulate more or less how the world works? Specific to travel, I, setting aside the, the pandemic considerations and, and what that, uh, how that will shake out uh, over over the next several years, you know, I, I don't see I, I don't see as much of countries totally closing off to the the casual interested observer. Uh, you know, maybe there's uh, almost certainly there's going to be more sophistication uh, if you're if you're posting on social media. Uh, you know, against a, a, a government regime, you know, that, you know, don't be surprised that, that you may be denied entry. I mean, that already happens and has happened in the past. And, and these things can get more sophisticated. Uh, you know, so many countries have, uh, and even Turkmenistan has, you know, so few visitors and so many hotels they want to fill that, that, uh, you know, this, this movement towards uh, a more broad openness and, and as well, the the rise of, of people with the means to travel in, in so many countries around the world. I mean, the, a country like Maldives, as, as I understand, you know, you know, their policy for a number of years has has been that you know any nationality essentially can come, you know, as long as they can show their onward reservation and their and their means to support themselves while there. And that uh, you know, has has done so much for countries. You know, to what degree they countries constrain it. I, I think that'll come and go. Um, uh, I'm not, I'm not so pessimistic on, on travel and, and actually, I mean, several of the countries you mentioned, I mean, one thing, uh, both, both China and Turkey, um, you know, the, the typical understanding of both countries is to think of them as contained units in themselves. Uh, one of the, the fascinating things of traveling the world, I mean, you look. You look. I mean, which which airline flies to more countries than any any airline in the world? I mean, the the pandemic has has disrupted it. But before pre pandemic, Turkish Airlines over a hundred, and uh, the next closest was in was in the eighties. I mean, it, and the the embassy building projects, you know, giant embassies, even in Somalia, Turkish embassies. You know that that Tur Turkey has done tremendous outreach, and communities see these and feel these. I mean, American embassies now are moved way into the outskirts of areas. They're essentially military bases. I, I know diplomats. They're not allowed to go out even in communities that seem perfectly reasonable. You know, that American with, withdrawal into a security net and only seeing things in a security relationship does a tremendous harm. Um, China's another that we think of this Chinese state and a Chinese government, uh, but um, check out the China and Africa podcast. And, and uh, if, you, if you travel around, I mean, there's so many places around the world where, you know, this is not a state-based thing. There's one or two Chinese families that run a convenience store in town and a restaurant. And, you know, they're all over Africa, all over, increasingly in Latin America, uh, in the Pacific. Uh, you know, they're, they're building roots and they are uh, becoming, you know, even if, you know, there's language barriers, assimilation barriers, you know, some of the commerce conflicts, but they are, 
they are building these person-to-person relationships in countries where an American is is like me coming there for a day as a tourist. You know, maybe there's a, a Gates Foundation worker that comes flying through to to do a survey. Uh, so this this increasing uh, soft power in just the the scope of the the diaspora. Uh, you know, China's uh, you know the Indian diaspora and in so many communities around the world uh, has been established for decades, and and China's uh, community just purely for. Um, commerce for personal personal interest the way these the, these have expanded that's going to have a huge effect and i think that will speak towards tr- borders and that staying more open than than the, the uh, uh pessimists might find and it's 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 a huge thing that that will uh continue to shape uh impressions of people around the world there's not there's no substitute for for having a positive person-to-person interaction yeah that's for sure um that's maybe a good segue to another question I wanted to ask you. There is, seems to be this big debate between what is the right way to travel? Is it very fast? So we, we had a bunch of kids, I would say, that were in their 20s, so went easily mm-hmm. to 193 countries. Some of them are barely 19. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then we have the other end where, where we, we, Boris Kessler comes in, who was um, mm-hmm. in a prior episode. He, he goes as slow mm-hmm. as he can afford, often like, four, five, six weeks just for a single country, um, literally mm-hmm. taking into place. What is your own compromise? How, how fast are you going to some of those countries? And what's your plan for the next couple of years when you're going to travel? Yeah, I, I do have a, an occasional blog called Rapid Travel Chai. So I was, when, when I didn't have time off, I, I traveled very fast. And I think, I, I think there's a certain mentality to it. I mean, if you're if your purpose is to set a Guinness World Record and you're not leaving the airport or you're just stamping in, stamping out, you know, that that achieves that purpose and that's not going to um, you know, be more than that. You know, I've, I've, I've been in places where I've spent, I packed 24 hours and I think the the, the, the first day you spend in a place, unless you spend it in bed or at the the backpacker hangout with the the banana pancakes, you know, if you if you if you're out at dawn and, and back at night and you've walked all day through a place, uh, that that first day is is incredible and valuable and it shouldn't be discounted. Uh, in every passport stamp, we we have one of the the rules we have is there's no right way to travel because those debates those debates get 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 very tedious my my own rule and we all make up our own rules of of what it is is that um i want to visit a place in a way that i feel like i i wouldn't have to go back i may very much want to go back so turkey's an example it was it was right near the end i had been through many times on transits but it wasn't till i had a, a 10-day road trip across the country from van in the east uh through the kurdish areas around the the aegean coast and uh, up in the peninsula and down into Istanbul. Now people would say ten days for that. That's totally nuts. And yeah, it was a you know that it should have been twenty or thirty, uh, but but packing it in and and seeking out those experiences, making making a lot of your your time is valuable. Uh, one thing I would I would advise people uh, if if they can, and, and maybe it's a bit of a turn on what what you said about Boris's uh, thing is that uh, if you have the opportunity to live in another place uh you know take that that I, to me I, I don't think i don't think the difference between two and four weeks in a place is all that significant i mean it, it can be it, it's it can, you want as much as you can have in many respects but when you get to 
say three months and then a year, when you get to two years in a place, for instance, suddenly then you can't just be skating by on all of your, your local things. You actually probably need local banking. You probably need to have figured out how to get some kind of residency, uh, you know, medical care, these kind of things. If, if, if you really want to have that very worldly experience becoming an expatriate for that one year plus up to two years or more, that, that I think is incredibly valuable if it, if it can fit into uh, someone's life plan. And I'd say that that sustained piece might, might make more of a difference than saying, I'm going to visit, you know, every country instead of five days, I'm going to visit it for 15 or that. I think that, that, uh, that sustained living in a community experience is, is really one to seek out. Yeah. Well, that's, that's another good shortcut, right? So a lot of people, and that's, that's, I, I never really thought about that, but the idea is to really go to a lot of places quickly, get a first impression, as you say, maybe a day or two walking around and then coming back to the places that you enjoyed uh, in comparison, because it's very difficult. A lot of people ask, where should I go based on my travel history? What do you think is a good country to go to? It, it really depends on your personal preferences. And it's, it is sometimes hard to forecast what someone will enjoy based on mm -hmm. their the experience they had before, how, what, mm -hmm. how, they, how they react to safety issues, how they react to it's too boring, they want more adventure, how they react to mm -hmm. big cities against uh, more of an, a nature experience. So I think it's a, it's a good shortcut to go to everywhere as you did it, go relatively yeah. quick, go everywhere and say, okay, well, I have another 30 years and I go back to the places where want to go back yeah and uh i mean yeah so people ask me you know how do you pick where to go i said it's no problem for me i'm going everywhere so i don't yeah i don't stress about it and i you know i think yeah people do put too much emphasis on it has to be the right travel decision and there's i mean there's just there's there's wonderful experiences to be had a lot of it's your frame of mind uh yeah picking a variety of things or you know working on a theme i mean there's there, there there's so many ways to uh uh, to travel and and uh, uh, I think I think any destination can be good. I mean, if you if you don't wall yourself off from it, you know, if you pick the package resort, then you're getting the package resort, which can be fun and enjoyable in its own way. But that's yeah. you know that that's a very specific kind of experience. Which trips? And you just mentioned a road trip in Turkey. I'm actually to. To, to about to go this year. Hopefully, they, mm -hmm. they don't change the entry requirements. Um, mm -hmm. What are specific trips you would you would love to do again that 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 stand out from the rest of you? So, well, this was so interesting. I'd, I'd rather do it again. Yeah, well, <laughs> that that list gets gets very very long. The one that jumped into <laughs> okay. my mind was was, was uh, what what yeah was was Faroe Islands. And if people have been to Iceland and loved Iceland, yeah. then I uh, although costs are a bit higher, Faroe Islands. I mean, I, I was only there a few days, but like one of the famous hikes is. I didn't even know it was famous until later, but I just saw this great scenery on the way to the airport when I was leaving. And it's one where you walk along a lake and then suddenly there's these, these rocks and then it just cascades into a waterfall down into the Atlantic. And, and I just stopped the car and, and ran to see how far I could make it without missing my flight. And I, I eventually fell and turned my ankle and came into the airport just sweaty and limping. And I barely <laughs> made my flight. I was like, that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's gotta be one that, that, that I've got to rush, yeah. rush, rush back to. And, uh, um, Yes, some trips are, are wonderful once and you know, maybe not necessarily repeat. 
uh, others, some destinations. I mean, a lot of East Asia, I just, I could go to Japan, uh, South Korea so many times and, and spend time and love it. Um, I'd like to revisit Tunisia again, uh, the Star Wars sites, the ancient Roman sites, the desert, uh, just incredible. Well, really any North Africa I, I, I love. I mean, there's, I'm, I, I love, I love ancient history and you know, added to that the scenery, the cultures. I mean, in, in Tunisia one day it, it rained in the desert when I was there and it becomes a mirror and uh, just this in, incredible natural site. Uh, you know, so much that's, uh, that's delightful. South Africa is a country that visit over and over again. And a lot of what I, I look at is uh, where, where would my wife like to travel? She likes to travel, but certain kinds of travel or where would I want to bring friends and show them, show them again and recreate what I did or bring my parents. And, and so uh, yeah. something like something like a Namibia road trip that I took. Wonderful, wonderful country. It would be a, a, a tremendous pleasure to, to bring my parents or bring friends to, to recreate that. Yeah, it's, it's, I think a lot of people, when they when they think back, it's often the road trips that give them a stronger memories than mm -hmm. than when you hop with an airplane from place to place, uh, because it's somehow harder for us to comprehend it. Comprehend it. It's nothing mm -hmm. in between, and uh, obviously there's there's people like Boris who go on really long hikes who really enjoy that. That's for most of us. We we don't want to go on fifteen mile hikes. There's a, very, <laughs> there's a small community who's really into this. I go on a ten mile run, but fifteen mile hike is a different thing. Um, I I think these road trips are often a good idea. But when I look back into the trips I did, I feel like the road trips I can I can emotionally attach myself to. They, mm. They're still in my memory. But if I hop to a few countries or like two days in every country in Africa, sure, that's, yeah. I got zero memory from those trips. Which is the one that stands out the most to you? For a road trip, um, I recently went to to uh, to Yucatan. I've never been to Yucatan. I've been to Mexico a lot. Ah. And we went to all the pyramids. And that was awesome. I really wanted to go. For some reason, I never went. And uh, we we drove by. And some of them are, are really busy. Um, but there's a bunch where there's literally no people. You, you're alone mm. with the old Mayan rocks. And you just sit there and get bit by mosquitoes. But otherwise... <laughs> It's it's a tremendous feeling to be so close to this ancient culture. I really love that. Um, that's yeah. what I, I recently did. That's it's very easy to do, right? You just get in, rent a yeah. car, um, and drive wherever you want. It's it's extremely simple. Yeah, and the and the road trips. I mean, they they there's concern. I mean, safety, different concerns about driving and wanting to be careful. But so many experience. I mean, I've I've seldom taken trains in Europe because it's the cost of the trains, and then I'm stuck in the middle of a city. Uh, I've been fascinated. I visit a lot of World War One and World War II uh, cemeteries, battlefields, and there's just no, it, that's the only feasible way to visit these. And, you know, if you want to be there at, at night, just as the sun is setting uh, at, uh, you know, a, 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 a poignant cemetery, that that moment is by car and that, uh, you know, that, that sense of freedom and, and spontaneity. Uh, you know, I've, I've certainly compared to a, a bus tour or some of these, you know, if it's within uh, cost wise, uh, driving is actually much less costly than than people, especially if they're hopping in Ubers all the time, uh, uh, end up realizing. But if it's you know, within, um, you, know, you need some skills you're, you're, too. I, like, I, I feel like in a lot of countries, you don't get an automatic um, gearbox, <laughs> which is the first problem. Second problem. You, you want the stupid American, outside. you want the stupid American uh, manual no, stories? I know, I know a bunch of people who just can't. <laughs> drive well manual i mean they just don't want to go through that effort right it's they're lazy and okay I'll, I'll, to... I'll tell you i'll tell you my tunisia story and this is why the 
the trip. So I, I was going to Tunisia. I was two weeks away from the trip. I could not find an automatic rental in the country. I had never touched a manual. And so I, I was commuting to work in Atlanta at the time. I found a guy with an old Honda on these hilly uh, streets in suburban Atlanta for two weeks. He taught me. I nearly burned out his clutch. Uh, you know, it was, uh, uh, But I, I learned just enough. And so I, instead of picking, all oh, the airport's going to be too busy. So I pick a, a, a pickup in the, uh, the Golden Tulip Hotel in Carthage. Well, it's on the biggest hill I've ever seen in the middle. And so I pick up the car and I pull it right out of the hotel, totally stall, nearly burn out the clutch trying to get up the hill <laughs> and uh, and then pulled into a little a little lane just to calm down. And, you know, what am I going to do? I've got to I've got to, uh, you know, get a, I mean, I'm getting picked up near the Libyan border to be taken into Libya and dropping the car off there. So it's not like uh, I have a lot of flexibility, but I'm in this little lane and it it turns out it's a dead end. And there's a woman peeling her string beans at the end of the end of the thing. And I, I realized on this car, I did not know how to get it in reverse. It was a kind of method that I had never seen before. And each time I thought it was in reverse, it inched a little closer to her. And she started picking up her beans and her skirts. And finally, I realized there was an extra little uh, thing to lift up underneath <laughs> and, <laughs> and got it in reverse. And then from there, I had the most wonderful road trip across the country. I mean, on roads that I shouldn't have been on. Um, Tunisia is one that uh, people hitchhike because there's very little public transport. And as long as they looked reasonably safe, I just took them in. I didn't accept any payments and just meet fascinating, fascinating people throughout. And uh, yeah, I mean, one town I I got stuck and didn't know how to reverse quite right and got half in a ditch and some guy came out of a bar and (laughs) got the car out. I mean, it was, (laughs) I guess at the moment it sounds less fun. (laughs) I mean, we think of cars, you know, driving in the U.S., most cities. I mean, San Francisco is a little different, but most cities it's really, it's it's every child can do it. But then I went Mm -hmm. to Greece um, a couple of years ago. And when you rent a car there on the tiny little islands, you you, you basically use that car as, as as going on a hiking trip. That's how these. Mm. That's how small it is. So you can literally sit in that car by yourself. They're tiny. Mm. They're all manual. They they have like twenty horsepower. And you go up these hiking trails. I'm like, this is this is not a road. And they're like, no no no, just go a little further. The beach will be there. <laughs> I'm like, this can't be real because it goes straight up. Like I don't know, fifty degrees angle. And you, you, you can barely, you can see the wheels spinning and eventually the beach will come out, right? But it's it's mm-hmm. not what we think of driving. It's basically hiking with a car around you and it's a tiny car <laughs> and you're old, like you don't break anything, but it's strange. It's almost like rally driving with a rental car, which you're not supposed to do, right? But there is no- Give us your Greek island pics because I've, I've, I've never been to any of the beaches. I've been to historical sites, but- uh... <laughs> Well, there's not a ton of, the, the beaches are, there's good beaches, but there's small mm. beaches and they're super hidden. So you really have yeah. to find them. And that, that was in Milos. Um, so yeah. you have to go through the countryside to find them because most of it, there's cliffs. Like you can't go to the mm. beach straight away. So it is, it's mm. kind of an experience. And it depends on the island. Some might have more beaches, like Crete has more beaches. It's a little easier mm. to get there. But still, there's a lot of mountains involved and there's cities and it's, it's you know, it's Greece. It's, it's, it's everything in between. Yeah, Crete is Crete is so large. That was a surprise. How big it is, and uh, yeah, it's like a whole I'm, think, I'm thinking which, which of the the main archaeological museum was one of the best I've ever seen. Uh, really incredible. Yeah. One thing that I'm personally very interested in: mm-hmm. have, have you made that trip to Barrow or Adak um, in uh, in Alaska? And uh, how did you find that? I have not been there. I've been out to the Aleutian Islands. Uh, 
If you're asking about uh, what is it like to be in the dark all the time, I've been to Svalbard, dark, but I've not been yes. to Vero or Adduck. <laughs> but in Adduck, you know, the, 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 the problem yeah. seems to be there's only one flight in and out every three or four days. So you can go back on the same plane, but then well, why are you going there in the first place, right? So you just see it from mm. above. And then otherwise you have to be there for four days. And there is a lot of infrastructure there. I, don't, I haven't found any hotels or guest houses. Mm. And you, it's, you don't need like a permit to go there. I think there's another island mm. where you need that because it's somewhat a military base. But in a duck, you kind of stuck for four days. I mean, I don't know. Maybe mm. you, you just chat chat people to to let them into their houses or their homes. Maybe, uh, I don't know what's yeah. the proper way to do this. Yeah, that that one. I apologize. I don't know. A couple summers ago, I took the Alaska Marine Highway, um, the state ferry system, from Homer to to Dutch Harbor through the Aleutians, and that was one of the best trips I've ever taken. And um, I, with pandemic and before that they were already they had a governor that was doing a lot of cuts to the system i mean some of them go even car ferries to washington state uh, but that it's a very very modestly affordable it's public transport for the state of alaska and there's a number of routes and and i would recommend to anyone to to consider that uh, you come with the, your car the, on those ferries or just by yourself uh there are certain car ones and so like the, the dutch harbor the um the um, uh, Aleutian one is not a car ferry. People bring bikes and that. But then some of the ones on the main routes down to Washington states are larger car ferries. But you, you meet a great mix of Alaska uh, travelers, naturalists that, that are around the state, uh, locals. I mean, um, on, on the Aleutian Islands route, there's you know, the high school team that's going to the next island to play a game and then has to stay a week uh, yeah. <laughs> in these really small communities. I, it was, I mean, some of them are that. just... yeah. Yeah, summer one was like eighty something people, and uh, I mean it was just fascinating communities and this 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 hidden gem of American travel that I was lucky enough an Alaska resident told me about. Yeah, never heard about that either. I have to check that out. It sounds really interesting. Is there anything where you where you feel like you really want to be there in the next couple of years? Um, and you kind of what, what are you planning on? Which trips are you planning on right now? My wife is very cautious of the pandemic, so I've actually tried to. <laughs> yeah, to you're not. still on lockdown. You can't, can't go anywhere. <laughs> let me uh, let me pull up. I, I made a. This was a. I think of late 2019. I I made up a, a quick list of all the trips I really wanted to go on, so okay. I can I, I can give this. I can give a laundry yeah. list. And uh, where was it? But uh, um, so let's see. North Caucasus, Kamchatka, Ascension, the Penjikent New Road of Tajikistan, Altai and Tuva, uh, the Mongolian peace between Dagestan and Kazakhstan, Arkansas to Louisiana road trip, Venezuelan Andes, Lapland, Canadian Arctic, Falklands, uh, mainland Tanzania, I've really only properly visited Zanzibar, Yemen mainland, eastern Taiwan, southern Ethiopia, India, northeast states, South Georgia and South Sandwich Islands, London, which I have been to business many times, but I have never been in the British Museum, and Rome, which I have visited the Vatican, but that's the only part of Rome I have visited. So, Whoa, that's, that's a quick... quite a list. That's quite, you, you're definitely the corner spot. Um, those are very <laughs> intriguing places. Not Most of them not easy to get to. And not in yeah, so the yeah, now London and Rome aren't necessarily easy, but it's uh, yeah. It, it, there's always stuff to to want to see more in depth, and uh, yeah, some of these like a place like London, a place like Rome, uh, Amsterdam, and I've I've visited many of the 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 major European cities and seen museums in a whirlwind, uh, but wanting to have that that extra time uh, to go back and and settle in and see things leisurely and and like, spend a day at the British Museum, I've. 
I've uh, listened to their uh, History of the World and 100 Objects from, that was produced uh, in conjunction with them a few years ago on BBC and and so much. But every trip I've been to, I've I've known that it would be so rushed that I just couldn't bear to go there for a half an hour and and uh, just <laughs> counting on on being in many places I will go I will just go for half an hour but there's a few like that that I've that I've saved and and really want to to visit at the right moment and I think that's probably bad advice in many cases you know, if you have an opportunity to see something see it because like. Uh, Malta and Gozo, that uh, you know, that that arch over the ocean that yeah. that was there until it wasn't. You know, these kind of things. You know, don't don't put off. Uh, you know, you're going back to you're asking how I decided to go out to China. I, mean, I was interested in a career in business. My parents are in medicine, so they they uh, weren't sure other than dropping me off at a country club and say, you know, caddy, earn some money and meet business people. And I met many people, incredibly financially successful. All they would do was was share the the regrets they had in their life, and and then they kept they kept telling me they said even if you have this dream of going to China, if you wait even a year two years, you get a good job, a good four hundred one k, maybe you're married. It will be so much harder to to go and do it. That if you really want to to have that experience, don't don't say it's going to be retirement. Don't say it's going to be when you're thirty when you get the right expat package you know really really do it if it means that much to you and uh because it's it's too easy in life to to make excuses and to put things off yeah carpe diem is still correct after all those years oh wait i wanted to ask you about mighty travels because i've been I know, a follow of your know, your business for so long works. i always cut people off i said that earlier i i have a bunch of podcast hosts mm -hmm. on the on the mm -hmm. show, and we always kind of before we, we get into the conversation, we, we say, well, it's a conversation, and so we should both have questions. But and they do that's what they do. They just ask other people the whole time, just ask questions. Mm -hmm. And when they're on my show, they never ask a single question. So maybe I'm too intimidating. Maybe I'm just interrupting them too much. No. I don't know what it is. Um, you you, you keep but, the one. I, I slipped in a few, but no, you're going to tell me about Mighty Travels because I've known the brand. Now I know the man a little bit. So let's go back to the brand, and you tell me. <laughs> Sure. What do you want about to mighty travels? Many of the people that that are interested in the kind of travels we've been talking about are allergic to, in a sense, to like deals, frequent flyer programs. There, yeah. There's only a few of us that that seem to cross over to both areas. Whereas a lot of the the frequent flyer program and and fair deal type people, they're they're only interested in London, Paris, Barcelona, that kind of thing. So. Yeah. Talk about that. Talk about that crossover better than I can. Well, it is an odd industry. I, I, I must say, we have a lot of really curious people that that are extreme travelers, right? So you got to be curious, otherwise you wouldn't go into that hobby, so to speak. And something interesting happened, and you, you used that um, to your advantage to go to all uh, 193 countries. I definitely took um, a lot of advantage of that too. Travel has been going through this through this metamorphosis where we, we, we have mileage programs, we have tons of different promotions. And once you get this travel hacking right, it's got much more affordable and much more enjoyable to travel. I really enjoyed that. And what I always felt is kind of missing is a really easy way to get to travel deals, especially airfare deals that are really relevant to you. Because a lot of stuff that you see from airlines is, well, you can go somewhere 399 deals 
$399 starting from that price point. And then you have to, there's no calendar, you can't search when you can actually go for that price. Maybe it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't include the taxes. Does it work from, from other places? It's always been a mess. And I always felt like, why isn't there a solution where I see only these things that are really relevant, either for the couple of airports that I'm actually screening, where I could fly from, where I see the relevant deals that would fit into my criteria. And we allow people, obviously, we give them notifications and we allow them, allow them to set a ton of different filtering um, mechanisms to actually only get the deals they want. It could be only business class and people are just, you know, they're snobs like the two of us or they, they don't care, right? They're like bores and like it just has to be cheap. And I think that was always missing. What's, what's happening since then, I think, is, and that was uh, like when we started out, it was MetaSearch was still very strong. You know, I used to run a MetaSearch company um, quite some time ago. And now I think there's Google Flights and Google Flights has really overtaken this MetaSearch um, part of, of travel search. And it's really finally fulfilled the promise that they always had. Google never wanted to do something about travel. Well, they wanted to, but they never did. They never executed on it. And I think now with Google Flights, they've come a long way. And I think where we fit into this whole universe is that we are like this, that the notifications that sit on top of Google Flights. Google Flights is not so easy to get the notifications you want when mm. deals come up. It's actually very difficult still. And this is where money travels now comes in. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how all of this comes back right after the pandemic and we we've seen that we, we went from being extremely we all thought it's only going to be a few weeks right in march last mm -hmm, year mm -hmm. and then um we were all convinced of this and then it suddenly looked really depressing flights went down by 97 percent. i think now the us is at least american says that they're back to almost 100 percent of capacity on their domestic network that they forecast for summer compared to 2019 which is pretty stunning to me um for international, you know, that's a different a different game. But mm -hmm. it sounds like Europe is going to open up next week for vaccinated travelers from the U.S. And we're going to open up for vaccinated Europeans. So if that happens, that would be a big change, I think, to the whole business. Yeah, and I love that you'll actually... You'll you'll actually post deals to uh, you know like Dubai to Guwahati, which is actually an India destination. Yeah. <laughs> I actually want to go. <laughs> which yeah, I'm curious. We don't, I mean, we don't discriminate against any of those, right? Well, so so many sites. I mean, they just find that they only get traffic for certain kind of things. I'm curious what what are some of the deals that you're like? There's no way people will be interested, and suddenly there's there's actually a ton of traffic you know a destination in, in northeast india is not going to be like the you know the, yeah, the you big know, one but then maybe suddenly you realize that's like the biggest deal of the year for... <laughs> well i don't know if the biggest deal of the year but you see like yeah. look, like um domestic connections for instance in in philippines are extremely cheap and you know they can yeah. travel to an extent um they're like five dollars mm -hmm. round trip or asia or there's, there's a couple mm -hmm. of discount carriers that are active and um so that's people just don't know about that um I always feel it's rare to find good deals in Africa. There's good deals between Europe and Africa, but inside Africa, it's mm. very difficult, or ex-Africa, yeah, so yeah. to speak. It's very difficult to find deals. Dubai gets a bunch, to the Middle East, Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that people often overlook. Um, and, uh, you know, also Turkish and um, some places in the Middle East, um, you, you mentioned the Caucasus earlier, they get quite amazing deals too. So there is a couple of things that people just overlook because, well, these are not places they really research because they don't want to go there. They don't even know about them. Very few people have that insight into specific places. That laundry list you just gave us earlier, um, that's that's quite a list. I mean, I think a lot of people would find that mesmerizing even to research these places. I, I couldn't pinpoint most of them, to be honest. Yeah. 
I'm also curious. Uh, you, so you mentioned where places where there's a lot of good deals, and say, say a few years ago, the the as a starting country, like say Sri Lanka was really big, uh, Egypt really big for really cheap fares that originate there. Where where are you seeing these days that you know? So the it gets the, the level of sophistication gets a little higher, but people positioning to these places yeah. so that then they can then start like a uh, a business Sudan. class ticket, you know, for a very cheap. So Sudan yeah, is yeah. good. Sudan is still good. I don't think if the run to world tickets still work. Uh, I'm not an expert in those, to be honest. Mm. But Sudan, and you, either, you probably saw this, uh, that was just two weeks ago, no, two months ago, there was uh, this Sudan deal that were pretty much anywhere on the planet, business class around $1,000 run trip. So oh, yeah. Canceled, yeah. Mm -hmm. Some didn't. Um, this deal has been on and off for about two or three years. So I actually used it to fly mm. to home to the US. That's why I went to Sudan. And mm. um, so those, you have to really just keep an eye on it. They come and go. Um, Egypt is still very cheap. Uh, it's, I think, these all these deals are coming back. You know, the business class fares, they didn't even file any fares anymore because mm -hmm. yeah. they wouldn't know if they can operate the flights. Um, but now mm. there's a lot more optimism that these flights might actually come back in, in, in reality. So they at least put the, um, the fares out there. Sri Lanka, I think, isn't as cheap anymore. Um, India's gotten better or cheaper, you know, for the international traveler. There's mm. a lot of good deals from Northern India, Southern India. Um, that's kind of what I see. And of course, you know, South Africa has an enormous amount of good deals. Also, um, Mozambique, for whatever reason. I don't know why yeah. Mozambique. Qatar flies there, right? Has really good fares from Mozambique. Um, but you don't find the same thing, I don't know, from, from Namibia. Namibia is, can be cheap. Um, they actually have mm. good deals to very interesting fares and a few hundred dollars only to uh, South America for the longest time. Unfortunately, no more flying there right now. But um, those deals, at least from, from Africa, those deals seem to be pretty interesting. But yeah, you need to be so, flexible, right? So if you if you live in LA and say you only you only can travel from LA, then those are for most people not not as much of interest. So your favorite is planning the trip, taking the trip, or reflecting after the trip. Oh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, I feel preparation is certainly still my favorite. I sometimes um, I I realize that the 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 positive expectation, I put too much of a positive expectation on mm. many of those trips, and I come back a little disappointed, to be honest. Um, well, sometimes it's the opposite, right? And then I get, and then I feel like it, it's, it's been, been surprisingly um, fascinating, that trip. But most of the time, I feel it's a bit, the reality is cannot really match my expectations. Mm. I don't know if you have the same thing, but I probably overestimate how much how green are the grasses on the other side and i'm mm. really excited for the first day and i want to take it all in and the second day but i think by by, by a week later i'm like oh, i don't i don't i don't know what i what it was up to why why would i think so positively of this place that happens to me a lot to be honest and i try to keep an open mind and i revisit places and then i change my mind again but i kind of make these rankings and in my inner rankings what is my favorite country to go to and place to go to and they definitely keep changing, but I feel like they've, they've been pretty stable the last five years. So that's an argument for the shorter trips, because I feel that euphoria too on the, the first few days, and then maybe a second visit or a longer visit, you start seeing every place has its uh, downsides. But yeah, for me, the planning is what just excites me so much. And it's I've, I've missed, you know, fitting putting on spreadsheets, you know, this flight to that flight to, to this and piecing it together. And, uh, and I, I, I do enjoy the trip as well, but it's that... 
it's like that that moment when everything fits together exactly what what I want to try to and then a lot of times mid trip I'll I'll tear it up and rearrange it but uh, I just love that 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 piecing together. Uh, I've been traveling with people and you, you literally you, they they make this really tight itinerary and they were they were really they knew what they would do every single afternoon mm-hmm. by the time they only had three days for the whole country right mm-hmm. but they get there and I I don't know I find this this overly. I didn't really participate in the planning, so I was just tagging along for the dates in and out the country. So I had my own plans, mm-hmm. and literally they get there, they have all these plans to say, "Oh, we're going to change it all. We get we go to three more cities." And I'm like, "Are you crazy? I mean, this is just a <laughs> country in three days. How can you go? Oh, well, there's an overnight train. We can make it happen, and we might just be a little late for the flight. So make sure you tell them that we're coming." I'm like, if "That's in a country you've never been to. That's crazy." But I don't know if that's your style. But I thought that's just adding a lot of stress to that exercise so they clearly didn't enjoy the country so much maybe they would but they really packed all that experience and i that's just not for me i think that's too much yeah and i I don't know so much it's having to pack it in but it's you know like you said if there's one flight a week and it's here to here to here how do you connect it to uh to get that and i'll leave i'll leave big gaps of what i'm going to do on the ground but uh often i don't have the flexibility to just say i'll just wait and figure out when the next flight is. You know, that's just not the the lifestyle I have. So I I do I I, I put together the transport very carefully, and then and then uh, as you said, if you're behind the wheel or whatever, you can you can turn and go this way that way, uh, figure figure something out. But I do love. Uh, well, anxiety love, uh, is a big big problem for lots of people to travel. Like that keeps them from traveling because it's an uncomfortable environment. It's an unknown environment, and I feel you got to strike that balance. So, which is odd, right? I, I travel a lot and I, I'm at airports all the time, but I usually go to the airports really early. Like people would say, oh, you just have to be there an hour and a mm-hmm. half early. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to be there four hours early. And they say, well, well that's crazy. Well, what are you wasting all your time? I'm like, I, I can work there the same way I can work from home. And But that's really helps me to to go through these trips with zero anxiety. So I, I never have mm-hmm. trouble. I never have anxiety on many of those trips. I enjoy them tremendously, generally, some more than others. And I think... This is what, what a lot of people associate with travel stress, right? There's, there's all these unknowns and they come to you and they put you on the, on the spot in that moment. You don't have to write paper, especially now with COVID. But I feel like there's always a way to work that out. Well, not always, but especially with COVID, mm, things have gotten yeah. harder. <laughs> but if you keep that flexibility in mind, things will be okay 99.9% of the time. Yeah, I mean, I flew for the first time in over a year, and I felt a little nervous. I mean, it was the same airline I've flown over two million miles on. I think I know it, but uh, you know, it is, and that's just part of the fun. And that's, uh, yeah, if you if you can get in the mindset of it doesn't have to be per, you know, it doesn't have to be the way you expect it. As if you if, if it works out and uh, you 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 gain something out of it, and especially I think Americans are so guilty of putting all these expectations on a trip and it has to be this way and that. And I, I don't redeem for business class flights usually because I get disappointed because then I start looking yeah. for flaws or economy. I, I'm looking for you things that are happy. Yeah. Well, no, but yeah. economy, then I'm, I get a Korean air bibimbap and I'm like, wow, this meal is really good. And it's economy, you know, and I, I get it in business class and it's like, why is it only the economy class bibimbap? There should be more, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, one thing that, that happened to me, I was in Sri Lanka and I, I tried to get out of the country. I was really early at the airport and, um, the the immigration was kind of waiting for me they were they, they knew i would be coming right and they were like yeah. hey you have to go and talk to someone else i'm like okay fine whatever and they told me 
this is a fake passport and I'm basically a criminal. I'm like, well, what do you mean? This is the passport I've been traveling with into the country and forever. So, no, it's all fake and we, we got a list from the embassy and you, you have to come with us. So I get into this holding cell for two hours. I'm like, dude, I want to talk to the, to the State Department and um, to the embassy in, in Sri Lanka. I'm like, no, 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 we, we, we got you and we just wait for, for the police to come. And strangely enough, 10 minutes later, after I made that speech, they say, oh, yeah, it's the State Department on the phone. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like 11 p.m., the State Department. And they say, no, it's here in Sri Lanka. It's really easy. And I talked to someone. She said, oh, yeah, sorry, we, we had the wrong person. And they sent me on my way. But that was really strange, right? So they, they were convinced I'm that terrorist. And then five minutes later, they said, oh, okay, sorry, that was the wrong document, right? Literally just, I don't know, clerical error for that. And, and that was the U.S. It sounds like the U.S. was driving that, too. You got on a U.S. list or something. Who knows? In between, they said, yeah, yeah, there's a, there was a U.K. The U.K. embassy sent us this list, so they all mixed that up. I don't know what it actually was in the end. Nobody wanted to tell me. And then, well, I just made it to the flight, right? I got, like, 15 people coming with me, so I went through all the different checks one more time. Very strange experience. But it helped that I was early at the airport. I still made that same flight. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll close by saying, you know, sometimes you, you start traveling and, a decision that seems ridiculous, uh, Cameroon, I had a transit situation where uh, my flight to Gabon was canceled for a week and they wouldn't extend, even with the national airline telling immigration, his flight is canceled, it will be this day, just extend his transit visa. They would not do it. They would not do it. <laughs> so there were two flights that would get me out before I'd get arrested. And one was to Paris and was to uh, Bangui, Central African Republic. <laughs> <laughs> you chose the Central African Republic, yeah, and of it, it, uh, Somebody on the hotel shuttle was heading there, and it said it was now visa on arrival for American citizens. <laughs> I just <laughs> booked it, and uh, you know, I, I'm sure when I started traveling, I never would have thought that's the decision I would make. But um, I, I, you know, after enough travel, I'd had the resourcefulness to talk to people and socialize on, even when I didn't expect to have to need it, and. And it worked out, and there were wonderful people all along the way, and uh, <laughs> wonderful experience. I, I feel like people should not get intimidated away from travel. You can solve language. You can solve so many practicalities. You, you can have a wonderful time in the world, you know, really anywhere you go. And and uh, often the least touristed, uh, offbeat and off-season, I often say, are places that are actually in the easiest in many respects to to welcome people, have a wonderful experience, not not have incredible pressure. If there's no tourist industry, there's not going to be many pickpockets, right? I mean, there's, <laughs> there's just ways to ways to look at things. <laughs> and, that's like, uh, well, it is it's a bunch of dangers, you know. Being kidnapped is a problem in certain places, or if you, mm -hmm. but in some it's a real problem, and you just stick out in some place, or I stick out. And uh, that is something you got to watch out for. That makes you uneasy. That's hard to enjoy a place where you know this, you develop a sense of paranoia. It's just, uh, it's hard to do unless you bring your own security mm -hmm. detail. So some places in, in Nigeria are tough, right, for anyone. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, certainly. Yeah. And if you stick out, you know, you got to take some extra precautions, which is all good, but it makes you paranoid. And then you're like, man, do I really want to go back there? Yeah, no, but I'd say those places in the world are, are so limited and specific. I mean, most places, I'll just get a, um, uh, a shopping bag from a local convenience or grocery store. I know I'm not going to blend in, but at least I look like an expat who just came back from buying the milk for the day. And I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, I, don't, I don't go to the Louvre dressed like I'm on safari, you know, with, with zippers and, you know, you know, these uh, detachable pants and vests and safari gear and $2,000 camera. And, and uh, when I, when I do talks for uh, 
people starting out traveling when I give my three D's rule, which is don't be drunk, drugged or debauched. And if you want to do that stuff, do it in your home country. If you know the rules, you know who to call, you know, you know what the local 911 is, what the legal system is. It, it may be not as cheap or not as fun or not as accessible, but it's you know, so much where people get into big issues, especially since I'm traveling alone so much is, is when they, when they start drinking or partying late at night, you know, the dark, empty alley. I mean, that, that stuff that it seems like common sense, Yeah. but you know, it's, it's true. I mean, you, you have an invincibility feeling in a way, like I notice I drive faster when I'm overseas and other, it just feels like the rules somehow don't apply a little bit because it's different. And yeah. so I have to watch myself and make sure I'm driving safely uh, because somehow that ex excitement, you know, you just, your judgment gets a little bit different in terms of some of your inhibitions. Yeah. Well, if you can blend in, I think that's, that's, I think good for, for making the trip more, well, not just more social, but also more real. But it's also good mm -hmm. for your own security precautions. So if, if you bring if you don't bring a lot of clothing, but buy something that isn't really great, but really cheap and buy it locally. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we have face masks, so it's even easier to, to blend in. Um, mm. So that's when, when it gets a little tricky, I feel if you if you can blend in, so nobody picks you out immediately, obviously, sooner or later, people pick you out because you obviously don't speak the language in most places. Um, that is usually a recipe for, for making the trip more enjoyable. Um, Ethiopia mm -hmm. is one of those places, right? It's not dangerous, oh, sure. but it is a place where you get bucked 24-7. There's so many kids on the street that are begging and they're really, mm -hmm. really, they're hunting you through the streets. Anywhere, and on, on, you don't have, there's no touristy area, right? So this, it doesn't really, well, there's a few museums, <laughs> but there is no touristy area in, in Addis or in Bahidar, and you've got these tons of people. You literally have 40 people walking behind you with a little bit of distance, maybe a few feet, the mm -hmm. whole day, and they never tire. It's tough. Why right? they're not dangerous, dangerous, but it's I don't know. It's if you're not prepared for this mentally, it's really tough, especially for first time travelers. How do you deal with this? You know, because you think they will be dangerous. They're not. Yeah. They could be. And uh or just building in downtime. I mean I've I found what works for me in India is every fourth or fifth day I play on a down day, which I don't plan anywhere else. But India is so exciting, wonderful that I mean, even beyond I lived in China, so I can I'm used to crowds, but India is just, it's overwhelming for me. So I'll take that fourth or fifth day and just relax, read, catch up, you know, not, not plan any kind of tourist activity and then recharge a bit and keep going. And I, I found I needed that and that's give yourself permission to do that. Right. It's uh, doesn't, yeah. it shouldn't be the travel you don't want. And I think that reflection, you, you started asking about the, the people that set records and go as fast as possible. And I, I don't think the, the problem might not even be so much that it's so fast, but it's totally continuous that even when I've had very fast trips, if it's in isolation and I'm back to daily life for a few weeks, a few months, that trip settles in and you think about it, you gain appreciation. It's like reading a book or a movie that you you think about that night, the next day. If it's just one continuous a one-year sprint, one after the other after the other, it's so much harder to have any any real takeaway from that uh, that you could still have with a quick weekend somewhere that's powerful and meaningful and and you have that space between the next one it's actually one thing that i that i plan it um it's and obviously not it's not possible right now but if if enough places reopen i had this plan of 52 weeks 52 cities and i still mm. keep playing with this and just basically string them along obviously the distance mm. shouldn't be too long drivable or like, I, I'm, I'm okay with flying you just literally stay 
in 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 a city in an urban environment for a week mm. and then just keep going doing this and just getting better and better obviously you do the same mm. thing again and again right where's my place yeah, of productivity yeah. where do i write my emails where's my coffee shop where do i get food so there is a certain nasty repetition mm. to this but i was under the impression if you force yourself to you get really good at this uh, even if you switch borders mm. or go through border uh, checks in between and change your sim card you know all these 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 things you still have to do um I want to try that out, and I, I think what, what, what is in my mind goes on is that your your mental picture changes. You come from this world, right? We, we are in this sheltered world, and we, we really enjoy it. How time flows differently when we go to a different place, faster mm. or slower. But in that way, you, you you're just a straight arrow of travel. So I, I've never done mm. that before. Probably mm. people have done this. I've traveled mm. longer, uh, like for three, four, five, six months. But it was you know two weeks at the beach, and then two weeks hiking, and then a week in an urban mm. environment. Five weeks is my longest trip, and I I was recovering for a while. So. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, after like a four a couple of months, I had trouble with just you know going back. I had this PTSD. Well, we've got your podcast extra turning the tables and hearing more about you. you. We got the bonus <laughs> section, and you you were successful, Stefan. <laughs> it's we did been it. a delight. <laughs> same here, same here. Um, again, thanks for all your insight. That was really awesome. My pleasure. And I hope and, if everybody's listened to this and the result is they want to travel, then we've succeeded. If they haven't, shame on me. Please travel anyway. Then we have to do it again. Yes, absolutely. All right. I hope to see you out there. Thank Goodbye. you. Talk to Take you. care. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.